Blog Talk Radio. Close all university departments for black, Latino, women, gender, queer studies, and so forth as incompatible with science and dismiss its faculties as intellectual imposters or scoundrels. As well, demand that all affirmative action commissars, diversity and human resource officers from universities on down to schools and kindergartens be thrown out onto the street and be forced to learn some useful trade. Six, crush the anti-fascist mob. The transvaluation of all values throughout the West, the invention of ever more victim groups, the spread of affirmative action programs, and the relentless promotion of political correctness has led to the rise of an anti-fascist mob, tacitly supported and indirectly funded by the ruling elites this self-described mob of social justice warriors has taken upon itself the task of escalating the fight against white privilege through deliberate acts of terror directed against anyone and anything deemed racist, right-wing, fascist, reactionary, incorrigible, or unreconstructed. Such enemies of progress are physically Knox with Punching Left and co-host David German. How are you doing this evening? Here. Good. Good. This, is, good. this is season two, episode five, and tonight uh, we're going to revisit critical theory, but maybe from a different angle. And uh, We also have some other things that we'd like to discuss, so it's not the only topic tonight. But of course, um, you know, our conversation kind of goes where it goes. This is just our starting spot. And we'll be covering, I'm sure, lots of topics and talking about a lot of things tonight. Um, and I just wanted to say that, as Hava puts it, you know, if you're out there, if you, you might want to check with your political correctness commissar before you uh, listen to the show, if you're easily offended, just to make sure. So, David, uh, oh, he, so, he, so he, what's going he, on? He, Go ahead, David. He, he he also recently said um, in an interview with Michael Malice for Your Welcome podcast, um, mm-hmm. he said that uh, Michael Malice asked him a question if he was a, a racist. He goes, I think that term lost any meaning whatsoever. If uh, racist is finding distinction between races, then of course I'm a racist. Yeah, and I was gonna, I was going to grab that clip, but had problems uploading it into our studio, into our system here. Uh, so may have to we have to revisit this uh, and bring this up later, uh, next episode, and we can play that clip. Um, but yes, yeah. he did, and uh, he basically said, you know, if it means differences between there are different races of people, then yeah, which you and I have made no bones about. I mean, we both agree that um, you know we're not all the same. Uh, people, you know, we're different peoples, uh, just like, you, I mean, for instance, if you take canines, dogs, uh, you divide them up into different breeds. Of course, they're all dogs, but they're not all the same. 
Uh, some are better at some I, than uh, others. And, and human beings, uh, we developed in different areas and evolved in different parts of the world and uh, different climates and uh, different things needed for survival. And so we're not all the same. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes. Uh, the African grew up in the sun. They had easy access to res- uh, to resources, and it was easier for them to be gratified that way. Europeans had to save for the winter, as so is uh, your, is your colder climate East Asians as well. Yeah, you know, you have to figure uh, in, in Africa, especially if you get down into the sub-Saharan areas of Congo, further south into Nigeria, even, I guess, probably northern parts of uh, South Africa, uh, they, they essentially, they have one. They have, it's a tropical climate. It's hot all year round. Uh, there is food available to be picked or hunted all year round. There's no need to really save food, save it up, or store it necessarily. And in many cases, uh, it's in your best interest to eat it right now because if you don't have a method of refrigeration or a way to store that food, and it, it may go spoil or it may get get uh, bugs on it. So even if you do have a method of storing it, it may not, it's not perfect. So you definitely want to eat it now. So that would lead you to be somewhat higher time preference because you really have, there's no, there's no uh, motivation to store it, save it. And there's actually motivation to not store it and save it. So I'd say that that's a good point, David, the the difference in climates. And Hoppe also made a, another distinction between, um, Homosexual, uh, homosexual non-family, and family unit. Uh, it's got him in trouble at UNLV back in 2004. He mm-hmm. uh, he said um, homosexuals on average have a higher time preference than heterosexual couples. Homosexual couples, they uh, they uh, don't have any planning for the future and um, have immediate well, gratification. And well, I think his point was they don't have they they're not they typically they don't have children, and because they don't, they have, don't have children, yeah, there's children. really no need. Yeah, so there's really the no need to save to create an inheritance for those children. So really, your primary concern is just to make sure you're taken care of through your old age, and that's it, and nothing more. So that makes it, your pre- it, your time preference a little bit higher than someone who does have children. Um, it's and it's that makes it. Um, dysgenic too, not not a very good biological sure. imperative. Right, right. Uh, so, to point out that to be factual. Yeah, yeah. So so we know there's differences, but you know uh, one of the things that we were going to talk about was some of the some of the look at like the alt right. You know, ha- a lot of people out there that they know they agree with the alt-right on a lot of things. Uh, Maybe not everything, maybe some things, maybe some of you agree with the alt-right on everything. Uh, Not everybody in the alt-right is, it's it's not a big monolithic entity. Uh, Some people, you know, the big thing that's going on out in the news right now is everybody's talking about how if you turn on CNN, which I call the collapsing news network because their ratings continue to collapse, or MSLSD and Watch those guys, uh, what they're talking about. They're constantly uh, equating um, the alt-right with white supremacy, white nationalists. Now, I will say that a significant chunk of people in the alt-right are pro-white advocates. Uh, I do believe 
Uh, and there are some nationalists out there, some white nationalists, but that does not make them any different than, say, black nationalists. Um, there is a, gr- a small group of people who consider themselves to be national socialists, and that particular group is not that big. It does not encompass the entire alt-right. The entire alt-right is not national socialist. Uh, it's just a fact. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, when when they, the national socialists actually are, I mean, by the very definition, um, white white supremacists. If if you look at it from that per, that perspective, uh, now you can either take that as negative or you can take it as positive. It just depends on the side of the fence you're on, I guess. Uh, but they are, and and they are. Um, uh, they do. They want to. I don't believe we currently have a system of white privilege, David. But if the National Socialists, if if they were in power, for instance, I think they would definitely institute a system in which there was uh, codified into law white privilege, and it it would be blatant and in your face. You know, uh, the, a lot of the minorities and stuff they advocate this stupid conspiracy theory that there's this implied white privilege, implied white supremacy out there that's kind of floating around in another area that just kind of erodes at everything in the background. But So what do you think about uh, the idea that, uh, that the whole alt-right is basically a bunch of neo-Nazis? It's, uh, I think that attack, for the most part, is unfalsifiable. And it's a straw man. And uh, there's a great chunk of the alt-right that really are capitalists, like you and me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, I, they were, I, think uh, I, I agree with that. And, uh, yeah, the, the whole thing about us all being national socialists is something portrayed by the media, and I... I take a similar view to what Ryan Falk espoused that um, I don't necessarily agree with the re- really agree with the rallies in any way. They were just it, it's just the since the left owns the media, uh, the media portrayed Ryan Falk. Ryan Falk, you're talking from the alternative, the alternative makes hypothesis. videos on YouTube. Yeah, he has the alternative hypothesis channel on YouTube. Right. Um, I I think that it's it's one of those things that it's, it's why I call it a conspiracy theory because there's no real evidence, as you pointed out, it's not a falsifiable theory because that's what white privilege is. <clears throat> white privilege, white it's, it's all narrative. The concept, well, the, the modern concept of racism as a you know which plays into this whole white white power white supremacy thing is an entire conspiracy theory that's concocted to explain all the differences that are that you see right there prima facie right there between for instance uh Asians and white people and blacks and hispanics and and uh north american aborigines and australian aborigines and so on so that this is this narrative that's been that they've created this is their explanation as to why it is that these particular groups are unable to get ahead in the world as, or at least generally be as successful as everybody else. It's because of white supremacy, because white people are keeping everybody who's not white down. 
So you pointed out yeah, it's not a falsifiable it, theory. And if the theory is not falsifiable and they continue to espouse it and they have this whole system based around it, don't, I mean, don't we call that pseudoscience or basically yeah. or almost superstition? Pseudoscience, superstition, conspiracy theories, irrationality. That's what we find right. with all some this irrationality. Well, some conspiracy theories are true. They turn out to be true, like the Gulf of Tonkin conspiracy. Turns out that that was faked. Uh, people talked about that for many years. It's what they started to use to start justify going into Vietnam. Turned out that we know for a fact that the Gulf of Tonkin was faked. Uh, so that was not a that's a conspiracy theory. And so I tend I hate the term conspiracy theory. I like the term conspiracy myth because I believe that it's a myth that white myth. It's a myth that whites colonized the United States and all they did was slaughter the native population. It is a myth. It's also a myth that we landed right in the midst of uh, American Indian populations and started building our populations, and they were all around us, and we started kicking them off land right away. Just started going in and just kicking brutally right off the ship, just shot a bunch of people and stole their land. That's an absolute myth. The places where uh, Europeans landed, there were nobody. There was absolutely nobody, and uh, there wasn't anybody for probably five, ten miles. Uh, in a lot of cases, they didn't have contact with Native Americans for months, for months sometimes. So, you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there. So, so that's a narrative which you you pointed out um, quite succinctly or that's a narrative white supremacy white privilege in the world in America and European it's all a it's a it's a narrative that they use to try and explain the differences between between peoples um, yeah it is it's, it's, yeah, it's but, a funny yeah, thing but, and people believe it. people believe it that's right well okay so there are some people that have have, have something writing on that theory all right, they have they have a reason for wanting to believe that some people. I mean, if you are in a in a, in a so-called oppressed or uh, at-risk minority, which is supposedly suppressed, hurt, damaged by white privilege, white supremacy, etc., then um, you have you have oh, to lose by by that being uh, done away with, right? Yeah. Yep. So it, you have you have there is something for for you to lose because your whole your whole your entire belief system has been based on that, and 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 not it's not just the economics of it because you're getting government grants, you're getting affirmative action for government jobs, you're getting special treatment to get into universities, you're getting um, uh, special scholarships, all kinds of things. Minorities get lots of lots of things designed to give them an extra leg up because of whites in order to help combat quote white supremacy unquote um, or, or white privilege so uh, I mean wouldn't you agree that they have a lot to invest in this whole concept minorities yeah they were taught I don't know to the extent they were taught by Jews this but um, mm-hmm. but they were taught by someone taught white people 
definitely taught by white people, well, in my opinion. Um, probably most, a lot of the time, maybe most of the time, yeah, ethnomasochist. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and, and there was probably some say, instances of Jewish Jewish professors teaching them this. Um, but horse, there's some instances of white professors teaching it. But there's white professors teaching it too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're they're the ones who are ethnomasochists. Yeah, and so can you? Can, yeah. What's an ethnomasochist? Someone who throws their own race under the bus in order to achieve glory and virtue signal. Yeah, when you say for glory and virtue signal, in order to obtain uh, to look to look virtuous both to your own people and to other people, to minorities, to throw yourself I'm out not there. Racist. In some cases. Right. So in some cases you're I'm trying willing, to I'm willing, I'm put willing. yourself you're trying to put yourself I'm into willing. a leadership position. You're well you're trying to put yourself into a leadership position with minorities. You're you're trying to buy yourself some sort of honor amongst your peers. As right, as yeah. a politician possibly or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's you're willing it to is, tell your yeah, own people. It's major, out. You're willing to put yeah, your own people on the line in order to look good. It's virtue signaling. Well, in many cases, like if, for instance, if you're a Hillary Clinton, you're willing to do it in order to get ahead politically, because you're looking for votes from minorities. So the best way to do it is to appeal, especially when you know that you can appeal to a certain amount to. Uh, uh, guilty white people, liberals, leftists, and you can appeal, and, and at the same time, you have appeal amongst minorities by doing it. So it's a win-win if you're a politician, if you want to go on the left. It's a win-win for you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and big corporations have nothing to lose by um, uh, getting involved in that whole process, that whole idea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're the ones promoting... Diversity. Yeah, and, they're the ones promoting diversity. And, yeah, and white, they they want to promote, and and they're gonna they're gonna buy in. They're gonna do the whole white privilege, white supremacy thing, and and give extra special treatment to minorities in the hiring processes a lot of times. Um, and the reason why is because these are big multinational global corporations that deal with lots of people in different countries. And so their their goal, they're in. They have many goals here. One of them is to try and make a make the Western nations, the most wealthy nations look as much population wise like the rest of the world as possible so that they don't have to tail they don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars tailing tailoring advertisement and ad campaigns to separate nations. And then, you know, another thing about it is that they're all about importing refugees and migrants because they want them to get on welfare because those people spend money. This is a way to force taxpayers to buy more product from the big corporations. They they give taxpayer money to refugees and migrants, so-called refugees, mostly they're economic migrants, and uh, uh, give them taxpayers' hard-earned money so that those migrants can go out and spend that money on products and goods, thereby further enriching the large corporations and driving the U.S. trade deficit through the roof. <clears throat> so... Uh, so we look at that. So what what would you say is the other what's the other narrative that nobody wants to talk about? Everybody hates out there in general in society, or a lot of people dislike. 
you what there, David? Sorry. I said, what was that? The, Sorry. Well, what do you think? No, that's okay. What's the other narrative that you see out there that, that other people uh, that we talk about that seems to be, you know, it, it fits Occam's razor better, and uh, it's the one that nobody in general society is comfortable discussing because they're afraid they'll be called a racist. The one that yeah, the narrative that the narrative that that basically explains the differences between races without uh, appealing to bigotry and racial racial uh, negative negativity. Yeah, Just straight facts. That would be mm-hmm. race realism, right? Yeah. So yeah, not, so, not, so, not value laden. Right. It's it's a it's a value free belief system or narrative. The theory on why the races are different. It basically relies specifically on statistics and comes to the most likely conclusions based on those statistics as what the real issues are. And what it all comes down to is that race realism just points out that we're not all the same. We're all different, but in certain environments, we behave differently. And some of us are better off in some environments than others. If you oh, have yeah. one yeah. group that has developed as a group of, of aborigines, in a tropical environment, used to having food at their at their hands 24/7, 365 days a year, and they need to eat that food immediately, or it'll spoil or get eaten by something else. And then you throw them into a society which values low time preference, you know, stockpiling and storing food for later down the road, uh, and investing in your future like that. Um, then you're going to have problems, especially when that other group has. Um, is more they've developed a uh, evolutionary mechanism uh, which uh, enables them to be more or pushes them to be more prone to use violence in their own environment. You bring them here uh, when they get frustrated and they see that they're not able to compete uh, in certain areas, they're more prone to resort to violence because that's a successful mechanism in their old environment. And what we're finding is it seems to be a successful mechanism in their new environment. Because they're getting basically getting cut, they're getting kicks in order to not riot, not attack people, not rob and steal. They're getting we give them welfare checks, affirmative action, and so on. So we carry them and uh, and do these things in order to keep them from disrupting society. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? That uh, yeah, I, the race realist uh, argument. Oh yeah, the race realist argument. It's uh, are you there? Yeah. So, what do you think about the race yeah, realist the, argument? The minorities are um, trying to use use the system to trying to trying to game the system through the narrative. Right. Or, right. yeah. yeah I, I mean, I've well, experienced a, a lot of a that. Very real, go ahead. You've experienced a lot of that? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite ironic. I experienced, uh, like, people who, I, I don't, I mean, I have in-group preference, which is considered racism nowadays, but, um, I don't consider it racism. I want to date inside not, my race. 
it's 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 actually what we would call racial prejudice or bias. Okay. It's only negative if you if you make it negative. Almost everybody I mean, has it. Black people have racial. Yeah, black people have have racial bias, and, and in many cases, often. You know, I think I think you'll find that the instances of them being racially prejudiced against white people and other races, just as high as white people being racial, having racial prejudice or bigotry against other races. Like, like in group, I mean, I have like, it's kind of a different topic. I have in group preference, but uh, uh, I don't, I don't go into the multicultural thing. I don't like it very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't want, and it it must suck for some people on the other in other groups to be forced to uh, cohabitate with people who are different than them culturally. Right. I believe culture is genetic. I've experienced. Well, I think it's about eighty. I've experienced they were. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's it, twin studies. If you go to twin studies, eighty percent genetic, twenty percent environment. It happens mm-hmm. for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, in people who say, "Well, well, uh, that you you're raised in an environment you're raised by people who you share fifty percent of your genes with." Normal side. Normally. Yeah. No, normally, normal situations. People, most people aren't adopted. Uh, most people, most people are um, uh, raised. It, if at least by, by your mom, then you have half of your genes they're ra- raising you, mm-hmm. and that counts. Well, well, I think I think if you look at these two competing theories, you have race realism on one side, and then you have the and whole race area. nihilism. Race nihilism. You're talking about uh, that there's race, no race. differences between races at all. I would call it nihilism, but race denialism. Okay, I, I and they and they probably I, I call I call it the um, the the equality. You know, all all human beings are equal. It's just environment, but that actually falls into the white supremacy argument because that's the basis of their argument. Is that given the same environment, same amount of money spent on education, same everything? If if it could all be the same as with white people then, for instance, black people would turn out exactly the same. And that the only problem is environment, that they live in a that, – that racism taints everything, and basically uh, that's why people of color are unable to uh, obtain the same levels as people who are not of color. That's the argument. I worked, I worked at a workplace, and everybody was claiming that this white privilege, however – Half the staffing management populated throughout were uh, not white, and it's which is funny. It's only about thirty-five percent of the population is people of color in the United States. You know, so yeah. that would be fifty. If it's fifty percent, that would be an overrepresentation in yeah. the workplace. Um, it's it's funny. Uh, you have a workplace, uh, most common corporations, which I worked at, uh, um, hold diversity view, and they enact mm-hmm. diversity. But then sure. uh, 
somehow their diversity has managed to um, be, in, be tied to white privilege somehow. It's just it's just absurd. And they're well, promoting people, of, and they promote people of color. I, I, this is anecdote. If they're if they're going to use anecdotes, sure, I'm going to use anecdotes sure. no, too. I, I, no, I'm with you. The, the thing is, and this is why I brought these up. This is why we were on these. It's because we're the, the the purpose of the show is to talk about kind of about critical theory and sort of you know where the alt right came from and some historical stuff there. And really, you can't yeah, talk. Race realism is like I the big. Well, it is one of them, and I and I brought up the brought up the National Socialist thing because everybody wants to say the alt right was as National Socialist. I got to be honest; I know the alt right's out there withering on the vine. Um, it's just not what it was two years ago. It just isn't. Maybe um, it can re- and, and be really, regenerated. I, I don't think that that name is going to work marketing wise anymore. Not after it, uh, it's it, been tied it, it's, after the. After the rallies that were misconstrued as Nazism, and it's not. But that's what they've they've done is they've 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 managed for in many people's mind a very significant amount of the population that's been conflated with being a neo-Nazi. So really, all the all right is this this uh, grab bag, this diversity to use. Here we go with diversity, this diverse assortment of ideologies, and all of them are non-politically correct. Some of them are paleo-conservatives. Some of them are monarchists. Some of them are fascists. Some of them are uh, traditionalists. Some of them are regular old, old-fashioned, you know, pre-neoconservative conservatives. Who, who um, more often than not, don't get engaged in boomer talk. Mm-hmm. So there are there are also it's, libertarians, straight-up libertarians amongst the group, non-politically correct, John Birchers. You name it. I mean, it's a it's a group. A a and there's no it, there is no leadership. They keep talking about Richard Spencer over and over again. Richard Spencer is not the leader of the alt right. The alt right has no leader. It's it's without a head right now. Eventually, it's it's been with it. Maybe never the movement. It's never really. It's all been. It's it's been groups that have just been laying out there. And I think it will be. And I think I think the left is kind of chopped up a little bit too into pieces. Well, there are more they, rational. They're more rational leftists. Yeah. The Frank, the Frankfurt School. They're more. They're yeah. a little more rational in presentation. I won't say the left wing well, ideas are rational. Well, let me. Just I think say that, that the liberals have found themselves in the alt right for the most part recently. At least, at least on the fringes of it, or the alt right. They're not like a lot of and a lot I'd of Frankfurt School falls into that group. They're Enlightenment liberals, some of them. Yeah, I think a lot of their ideas have somewhat, and they're somewhat on the left. But go ahead. Do you think a lot of their ideas are what? I think a lot of their ideas, probably, this is a kind of a shot in the dark. I think if you could pick out their ideas. They probably start with Descartes. It's it has a lot. Beginning of the Enlightenment has a lot to do with it. They they kind of misinterpret him probably, and they take they take him his ideas Mm. his knowledge his epistemology, um, to be to mean solipses. Well, let let me just say one thing I wanted to go back to real quick before we go into this is that you mentioned Antifa. 
Antifa is more organized and does have more of a center than the alt-right does. Antifa claims to be a group of disparate, this disparate bunch of groups that just get together uh, um, uh, autonomously, you know, randomly and spontaneously, and they don't. Uh, they're funded heavily by people like George Soros' Open Society, the Democratic National Party, uh, and even the Hillary Clinton campaign chipped in funding on them. And there's a lot of different groups out there, left-wing uh, 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 organizations that pay these people to show up and do it. So they have brains. So the brains are these organizations. And these all these organizations get together and discuss what they're going to do together and plan together. So it is not spontaneous. The alt-right, that Unite the Right event that happened out on the East Coast, that was spontaneous. But anyway... So you were talking about uh, the Frankfurt School, and you said you thought it was Descartes, but you felt like that he got it. They, they misinterpret him. Why do you say that? And a lot of, especially people on the left, they misinterpret Descartes. I think they they what my my view is that they they take his ideas and they interpret them as solipsism. Like um, I I. Ideas begin with uh, only the function of the mind. That, that's the ideas are are not tangible. I, I think that's where they take it to. They take it to um, like, well, for instance, I saw well, I saw one one article. I think was probably influenced by postmodernism. It's just like uh, like what we were talking about. Black people cannot be held to objective reality. Mm-hmm. Well, it, and we, we uh, know what that is. means. Well, Rene Descartes, uh, you know, the idea that I, you know, I think, therefore I am. So he, he is a very skeptical philosophy to begin with. I mean, he, he he tried to sit down and figure out what it is that he could he could actually prove is real. And by the time he was finished, he, he felt that he'd come to the conclusion that the only thing that he could prove is that he existed. As he couldn't prove he had a body, he couldn't prove he well, he proved he had a mind that he that he. He could think, therefore, that was the evidence that his mind existed. But as I've heard said, and I say myself, you know, if you want to go down that super skeptical route, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of skepticism, is well, you could always ask, how do you know those are your thoughts? What if you just think they're your thoughts? What if something's putting those thoughts but, in your mind? But that's unfalsifiable, ultimately, so we have to uh, default to it, it, the conclusion. Well, that but, see, that's my point. point is that, is that um, the the fact that they're your thoughts might very well be unfalsifiable. I mean, how do you prove that you actually they are actually yours? Because Other than the fact uh, that you say, "Well, I'm having them. I'm having them. I'm having these thoughts." But how do you know? How are you? How do you know you're having them? Just because you say so, it's because you think so. You it, feel it's like ultimately- you are. there's no evidence of it. It's ultimately circular. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the only. It's a circular fallacy. It's the only way I can get, come up with is that I only think about these thoughts because I'm the one thinking about <laughs> these thoughts, well, and see, that's I, the only I, way I, I can I, prove that's it. Why I don't, yeah, and see, that's why I don't. Why, see, I think that that um, uh, that whole that whole line of skepticism is too much. You know, I I don't mind. Uh, there's a healthy amount of skepticism, and I think that when you start to take, I'm not sure that Rene Descartes took his philosophy 
as serious as some other people do. I think I think it was just an exercise in skepticism to show people something. I don't think that he actually believes that the only thing that exists is our mind. And I don't actually believe that those aren't your thoughts. I believe they are your thoughts. I'm just pointing out that if I were to use, if I were to, why stop at your thoughts? If you were going to use that level of skepticism that Descartes was using, why not just move forward from there and go ahead and say, how do you know you're your thoughts? You see what I mean? Why, why be arbitrary and stop there? That's why I don't care for Descartes myself. Because uh, he he himself probably had original thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> he 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 was. Well, <laughs> original thoughts. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. It's it's an old platitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's something. It's a person. But but also but joke. also. But also, we've been told by people who don't read that uh, they don't need to read. They have original thoughts. So that's something we joke about occasionally. Um, or or T-H-O-T-S. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, I mean, if, if, you look at, if you look at the way enlightenment, uh, for most part, I feel like, and I think a lot of philosophers feel like that the enlightenment ended with Marx that he was the logical conclusion from where uh, Descartes, he, Descartes was a dualist. He believed the mind and the body were separate. So ultimately it all came down to materialism for Descartes, constantly asking questions like how does your immaterial mind move your physical body and things like all kinds, they had all kinds of crazy explanations. In the end, you know, you had this journey all the way through Hume and Barclay and uh, uh, Leibniz, you know, and um, Locke, all the way, you know, all the way down the road here to um, until you arrive at um, Marx, and, you know, Hegel and Marx, which is this whole idea of Kant, Hegel, and then Marx, which is this idea of uh, Hegel had this idea of the, of the forces of history, you know, historically, actually almost as if history was the driving force of all of, of everything. And Marx took it a step further that it was material forces of production that drove everything. So that's, you know, we end up with, you know, the Frankfurt School forms because, you know, why did all that fail? Why, why did, why was Marx wrong? Because all the things that he predicted, most of them didn't take place, but yet it made so much sense to a lot of them. Yeah. So why do you think it, why do you think, I mean, I know that you've done some reading on some of this stuff. Why do you, why what would be your thoughts as to why maybe communism didn't take hold in cap in like advanced capitalist countries like Britain and Germany and the United States and so forth? You mean like from a race realist perspective or a, a post enlightenment uh, perspective? What, whatever it might be, whatever you think the primary. Whatever you think the best explanation is, I mean, no limits on that. Yeah, no limits on explanations. Uh, Britain, for example, they're not. Uh, that's not their uh, culture. Communism isn't their culture. Um, if they get overrun with uh, retards, if they get overrun with, oh, well, they have retards <laughs> already. Uh, uh, right. No masochists. Um, yeah. If they get overrun with with uh, 
with Muslims. Muslims. By the way, Muslims, Islam is not the final red pill. Uh, they'll get hardcore socialism, like those bath party because, retards. Well, because Islam is, it is basically they they preach socialism as a part of Islam. The reason why Islam is taken over is why why the homogenous women of Sweden, Europe, and all other European countries, England. The women are starving for men who want to be men and want to treat them like the women they are and not uh, not be uh, big pusses. Right. Yeah, but, but I mean, what's your, right. what's your feeling as to why it is that, that communism never actually took over in these industrialized nations? I mean, communism started up in Russia. But that wasn't that was like a, an agrarian it's, it's a, country, a it's poor native, agrarian nation. I don't know if I can explain the Russian case fully, but I believe mm-hmm. that they're uh, they're culturally they're more collectivistic, have a collectivistic mm-hmm. mindset, and they're mm-hmm. not really a part of European history. They're part of European history, but they're not really a renowned member of European history. They were kind of on their own. They're kind of independent. They were influenced mm-hmm. aesthetically and somewhat somewhat culturally by Europe. But they're not they're not a huge part of Europe. They're kind of like an Eastern mm-hmm. society. They're almost and, like, like semi they're semi European in a way. They're not really quite there. Yeah. They're European yeah, they're, 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 but they're not they're not at the same they're not it's hard to, to, to see them as fully European. They're they're considered a second world country. Well, you know, do you think do you think the fact that um, I mean, if you look at at Slavic nations, I mean, they have as a people they they don't necessarily measure up real well on IQ versus Western and Northern Europe. But have you not noticed that? I really haven't taken I've taken a look at the native European uh, co- mm-hmm. almost collectively. I do not know the average Russian IQ. I'm pretty sure it's probably in the 90s or Slavic mm-hmm. Slavic IQ. I'd say your Western Slavic, I imagine, are probably on par with your native uh, right. continental Europeans. Well, mm-hmm. your average European British included are probably about – all of them are probably at 100. Well, well, well my thing is that, you know – the only places where you, if you look at communism has taken hold, it's not been in the major advanced industrial nations. It hasn't been in places like Britain and Germany and and the United States. They've got some socialism, but it's not Marxism. It's not full, com, you know, it's not, they're not on the road to communism. And uh, if you look, it was second and third world nations all over the place that went to communism. And it was brutal. And they bring them into the, you know, into the 20th century, basically, and then coming, and it seems like once they get to a certain level of advancement, the people get more educated and get more, you, you know, sophisticated. And then they start looking around at the Western nations, going, "Wait a minute, they're not communists. They look how they're living." And so they now that they're an advanced and now that they're more advanced industrialized, they're like, "Whoa, okay, we're all we're industrial. No, we want to do that." And so they throw off communism at some point that the Stalinist, Leninist, Marxist type, and start going for that Western style free market 
uh, economy, which is what you saw in, in China. They just did it without all, you know, without all the uh, the, the the big giant fireworks like you had in the Soviet Union where it just collapsed and everything went nuts for a while. China slowly, gradually kind of got itself more involved in, in Western markets by engaging the West and slowly reforming their nation, even though they're still basically Marxist and to, I'd say, 60% communist, they went free market enough and capitalist enough in order to uh, keep from collapsing and losing power like the Soviet Union did. So all these third world, so it's only happening in third world nations. Most of these third world nations are not European. So communism, though it was created by a Marxist, it doesn't seem to be. Um, it doesn't seem to be something that European people actually desire. However, people of color seem to desire it quite a bit. I don't know if you've noticed. It's because their societies are more. They have more of a preference to collectivism, like uh, often, yeah, because I, I, especially the I, Aboriginal. Uh, and pe- for people who's who libertarians, especially who try to comment and say, "Oh, well, you're you're thinking, you're not thinking individually because because you're thinking of people in terms of collectivists yourself." I'm like, I'm not a radical individualist retard. I, I'm an individualist. As, I'm an individualist as so far as it uh, pertains to culture and law. I'm not. I'm not there. I'm not a collectivist. I understand that races exist, just like Hoppe. Hoppe is not a retard. Right. Well, I, the only thing I can tell you is, you know, so so beyond all the fact, you know, that the front for school, and so so I think that that uh, the whole idea. Uh, that the culture is the problem is something that really is what the Frankfurt School looked at. I mean, Marx talked about the culture had to be right, et cetera, et cetera. And then you had uh, Gramsci in Italy, communist Marxist communist down there, who said that it was going to have to there was going to have to be cultural changes for Marxism to take place. And um, I think he's right because if you look at the cultures of these third world nations, they like you mentioned, they're collectivists. Uh, and they, they have a different way of thinking about things. They don't value the same kinds of things that people in the wet Northwestern Europe value. They just don't. All right? Like, they don't like, value individualism at the levels that we do. They don't value it. Just like um, like Rick Story, who is in our one of our podcasts, uh, uh, was about uh, Western culture, I think. He uh, he law said, yeah, common law and Western culture. He said that the Japanese, uh, whenever one failed the mission, they all basically committed kamikaze. Mm-hmm. Or what? What they all? Uh, what's the? There's it might be another word for it. I don't remember. But uh, um, they committed seppuku or hideyakidia. Yeah. Yeah, they took their own life with their swords. Yeah, stab themselves. If they all failed the mission, that's that's collect essentially collectivist. Mm -hmm. If they failed the mission, they took their own lives. 
Right, not just the guy that was the cause of the failure, but all of them. Yeah, even even the society is Western eyes, westernized as Japan is. It it takes they do that stuff. Well, so so if you think about that, even if, if you look at the um, the Frankfurt School, one of the big problems with them is that essentially, in my opinion, they're Lockean, Kantian, Hegelian, yeah. Marxian. And they had some things going on there with Nietzsche. They, they they admired Nietzsche because and Kierkegaard too, primarily because really Kierkegaard and Nietzsche were the first people to really critique government and to critique mass culture. Uh, you know, it was it wasn't yeah. until the Reformation when you had the printing press come out that you started having newspapers and magazines, and that was really the first form of mass media. So you know, they began to see. Um, mass media for the first time, and you're talking about newspapers and magazines. So they they were um, they, Nietzsche was very unhappy with what he called you know the massification of man. So he he didn't like it. He thought that that it was generic, and that uh, the the whole point of being alive was to live it you know to your fullest. And, and here we are seeing all these people in society you know following these these fads and. Everybody's getting, you know, everybody's wearing the same shoes all of a sudden. Next week, everybody's wearing the same pants, and the week after that, everybody has the same umbrella. Everybody, you know, and they start doing all these weird things, and everybody's mimicking each other. And for Nietzsche, and even Kierkegaard to a certain degree, you know, it, it, it kind of took away from you as an individual. And so, um, they, they, the, the Frankfurt School um, looked to those two pretty heavily on that whole concept, you know. Uh, and, and not to mention the fact they also pulled in Freud, which you and I have talked about quite a bit, right? Yeah. It, you know, so they get the you know, Eric, Eric Fromm. Well, I had a German lady correct me one time at a philosophy meeting. She said it's Fromm, not from. Fromm. She got to roll that tongue on the R. Um, Fromm. She's very, yeah, she could tell she was highly irritated with me for mispronouncing Frome's uh, last name. So, uh, uh, you know, the idea was a psychoanalysis. Just like, just like um, psychoanalysis. Go ahead. Just just like Rammstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just it, call him Some people call him Ramstein. Yeah, I know. And, the, and that's kind of like the, the old young Frankenstein. They call it Frankenstein. He'd say it's Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Rammstein's not a Jewish band, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, uh, so so it's culture, and these guys are wanting to analyze culture using Freudian theory, and of course, uh, from. Uh, was kind of the center of that portion of it. He's kind of what really brought that to it. You know, he he was formally educated in psychology, and so he was big on psychoanalysis. And he kind of, um, I would say, amended some of, of Freud's concepts and ideas. He had some criticisms of Freud. But generally speaking, I mean, yeah, I mean, he still, he, he stuck to Freud all the way through. Um so the, the, the thing about the Frankfurt School that, that kills me is that <clears throat> the whole idea, and, 
they actually started in the 30s. They started prior to the Nazis taking power. And once the Nazis took power, of course, they they had to flee. And so they fled fled uh, Europe and came to the United States. Uh, and, and, so, and they founded the New School, what we call the New School in New York now, which is pretty much a, a major hotbed of critical theory still to this day. And a lot of the transgender ideas and philosophies are coming out of there. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so, I mean, kind of, you, when we did our last episode with um, uh, Kashif Vikas, uh, you kind mm-hmm. of talked a little bit about critical theory and sort of what some of the things that they had to say about modern culture and, and modern men. Well, can you go, can you, what was that again that you said during that episode? You kind of explaining some of the stuff that went on with it, like sexual frustrations and different things like that. Yes. It's uh, they try to apply a Freudian uh, take on the culture. The culture is capitalist culture is stigmatized because it uh, doesn't, they don't allow arrows to flourish. It's all based on uh uh, individuated, individualized um, power and control, and that power and control uh, takes uh, is kind of like a what Freud would call a uh, when someone redirects their energy to something else, sublimation. Sublimation. It's kind of like a su- sublimation of the. Uh, one's working energy in place of uh, sex, and that's uh, and, and on the other hand, too, we uh, that capitalist culture uh, turns people into sex objects, basically. That that's from right. analysis. It, it, well, it, it oversexualizes some women and represses others. Um. But yeah, that that's right. That makes sense. And and what's funny is that that's all brought about by the by the massification of man. You know, like you were talking about, uh, they'd rather they put all their energy into getting a new car because everybody else has a new car. And so you're constantly busy chasing the next thing you want to purchase, and now all your energy. And so you you sort of almost like a hamster on a wheel get trapped in, in modern society as a consumer. Um. So you know, and that's kind of interesting. Uh, we, we've had a lot of, uh, not to get too far into that, but we've had a lot of long discussions about Taxi Driver and some of the Freudian aspects of that. And, you know. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, Taxi Driver. Uh, well, I, think a, I think that movie is that's, a perfect, that's a perfect example of, of what yeah. the Frankfurt School is talking about. It, uh, and it it's kind of like a war kind of there with if if Rome had a war shot test and he picked a film he would pick that one because Travis Bickle Travis Bickle almost is kind of proletariat even mm-hmm. though he's uh he's a bit of a of a racist he's misogynist uh he's rec- he's reclusive uh, yeah that's it's an example of him being exploited by capitalist society. 
he's expressing these uh, terrible uh, traditionalist idea of that he can make the woman better rather than herself and her own uh, independent state can is just an example of uh, old masculine culture of domination uh, trying to uh, trying to take over. Right, and it's a it's that's where kind of where also where Rome is kind of Freud, but also at the end, same time is anti-Freud. Well, I, I see a little bit of existentialism in there as well. The, the, the film almost ha- has some echoes of like uh, uh, some of the things that you read from Sartre or Camus or, or some of those guys too. I mean, you see you see a bit of that. Those uh, some of those existential issues addressed in the movie. Um, regarding him trying to figure out just who in the hell he is, you know, and what the fuck he's going to do next. You know, he's, he didn't even, in the beginning of the movie, he's kind of, it's almost like he's lost. He's not sure who he is, where he is, or how to proceed. He sees these women that he's attracted to. He doesn't, he's not even sure how to approach them, so he just stares at them. And it's not really until he finally works up the nerve to talk to one of them, then he goes and buys some guns later, and then all of a sudden, it's almost like he manufactures this identity for himself, and then the movie really starts to take off after that. But it, it's almost, it's kind of interesting, as you can see the phases there. So he, once he figures out who, once he establishes his identity, then um, he, he changes. And you can see it, too, when he's talking to that politician, and he says that he thinks that they ought to just flush all of New York City down the toilet. So yes. it's kind of interesting, you know. So he he takes he becomes a conservative basically is what it sounds like, guns and you know as of course liberals are fond of calling conservatives racists. So it's, it's one of those. It, well, things. he kind of becomes the folksy everyman, and the folksy everyman right. is the populist who's um who's uh, to the left a uh, person who's contemptible. Right. So, and, so when you look at that, go ahead, go ahead. You had some more to add to that. I apologize. Go ahead. And the person who's contemptible is he—he's—he's he's putting on this mask, this facade, and this would fall into Frome's theory of uh, people, and like he's a taxi driver. He drives at night, and he's kind of like it's kind of like robotic, and so he's kind of like just playing out something that. Um, from an existential point of view, probably that Fro- that Frome would probably concur with, it's that uh, that he's being exploited, so he has to put on this mask and put on this mask. He has to to fit in with society. He has to adopt this ultra masculine role. He thinks and uh, traditionalist capitalist masculine society uh, make him made him that way. You're right. The market, the market, consumer-driven markets made him that way. It was all about consumerism and and modern modern society and man's alienation from his own self, basically, and men and women their alienation from each other and uh, the roles that we're forced to play in society that don't necessarily fit who we really are, such as the uh, um, uh, we talked about the, the Madonna whore. I, yes, it, you know, it, and he tries to. Um, big show. He tries to uh, balance women out himself. Uh, Travis Bickle, the lead character, the taxi driver. He tries right. to uh, turn a. 
he tries to turn a Madonna into a whore, and he tries to turn a whore into a Madonna, and it, it, it kind of goes right. Away. And this is just right. an example of that. Yeah, so he's trying to he's trying to uh, he, he, the, the the repression on the Madonna, her sexual repression, because she's goody goody two shoes when it comes to sex. Um, you know, he, he offends her, and then he kind of, in a way, he offends uh, the the whore because he tries to make her go home to her to do her family, tries to make her more upright and uh, make her go home and finish he, her schooling he, he and all that stuff. She mentions she mentions women's lib. And he kind mm-hmm. of is, uh, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know about that mm-hmm. stuff. And so it kind right. of go, goes right through him. So he's like, he doesn't know what that is. Uh, but he's trying to make her better, make make him his perfect woman, like, like we discussed before. And he's trying to make, um, he's trying to make uh, uh, Betsy, the other character, the office worker, the Madonna. He's trying to make her a little more of a whore. He's trying to balance. It's about balancing yourself out. Uh, well, he, he, wants, he wants some of both. He wants some of both, but what's happened is this is one of the ways in which society according to the movie has alienated men and women from each other. You know, It's actually alienated yeah, and, women and from themselves because it's alienated women from their own sexuality and their own, their own normalness as, as women. So they're either over-sexualized in society or under-sexualized and repressed in society. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Um, so, I mean, go, you know, not going any further into, into Taxi Driver, because we, we could do a whole episode on Taxi Driver probably. Um, I, I think that the point that we were going towards was the fact that Critical theory, you can see it in that movie. And what the Frankfurt School is talking about, this, this identity thing, trying to be an individual in a, society, in a society where everything's done on mass, mass media, mass communication, uh, mass marketing, uh, huge products, big grocery stores, uh, big cities full of millions of people. Uh, just everything is, is scaled to these, you know, everything's done for, they've homogenized all of it. And we lose our individuality and the homogenization of it. Um, and so, the the Frankfurt School started out going, you know, down this road. And in the '60s, you know, Marcuse wrote his his books that that really kind of resonated with a lot of the the youth in the '60s, and that's why he ended up with a lot of the counterculture. He was sort of almost like a, a seen as a as an icon. Of, amongst the counterculture people, a lot of the intellectuals in the counterculture. And so the, you see the left is kind of the, the new left, because you had a left, which was that old scientific Marxist left. And with critical theory in the Frankfurt School, they were trying to figure out why it is that communism never took over. And they came to the idea that it was culture. And in a lot of ways, they felt like you had to tear down the culture and rebuild it in such a way that would allow for communism to happen. As that interview that you and I saw with Marcuse and Brian McGee, which was on the BBC back in the 70s, um, one of the things that Marcuse said, if you remember, was what? I don't believe that communism has ever, has ever actually been falsified. His exact words, I don't believe that it's been falsified yet. I think that it has yet to actually be tried, which, you know, famous last words for any any commie that we know, right? Yeah. So. And I remember you told me, uh, 
he said, well, I don't think Marxism has been falsified. And you go, exactly, because it's unfalsifiable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's what we, and, and we were actually talking about that prior to you and I, prior to you watching that video. And one day we were talking about it, I said, it's not falsifiable. The reason why that you can't actually show that communism fails, is be, and they're constantly saying that it won't, that it hasn't ever failed, is because their answer is it's never been tried. Well, that's kind of a cultish thing to say when you have umpteen different versions of communism that have been that have been run. Every one of them calls themselves communism. Every one of them has a party of proletariat supporting it who say that they're out to start, you know have a communist have communism. And so it always starts out in the grassroots. You have the violent revolution. They overthrow the government. You get communism installed. And the next thing you know, it's not real communism anymore is what they say. So it, it, so my opinion is, is that that's what communism looks like in practice. What, what communists have in their head is far different than what actually exists in practice. It's not possible to do is what it? they have in their head. So therefore, they're constantly going to look at what's, what it looks like in practice and say, well, that's not it. And so it'll never be falsified because they'll constantly deny that co- communism was ever put into practice. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's not what I see in my head. Uh, <laughs> it, it never really was implemented. It's not right. Marxist vision. Well, when you have something like bureaucracy, probably never get the vision you want. You'll probably always get some, some, uh, something that's terrible. Well, you can't, you can't have. There's never going to be a utopia in this world, and that's what communism is. It's a utopian ideology, and and they don't, and they believe that you know that. It can be done, and the truth is, it can't be done. Um, so, so you know, the, the the Frankfurt School was no different. This is a lot of Marxists. They 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 were highly critical of, of Marx in a lot of ways, but at the same time, they were Marxists, and they they made it clear that the reason why the communism didn't take hold in the West was because of culture. So that. If, so when people say, oh, cultural Marxism is a fairy tale, it's a conspiracy theory, it's not. We're teaching it in our colleges. Cultural Marxism is critical theory. It's gender studies. It's semiotics. It's colonialism. It's, 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 you know, it's LBGTQ studies. It's queer theory. It's all of it. That's all cultural Marxism. Because cultural Marxism is a slang term, not a, not a technical term, but a slang term for critical theory. So what's happened is, is that cultural Marxism or, or critical theory has spawned the new left, right? Yeah. So we have this, this, whole, this whole left-wing ideology that we're experiencing right now is all a product of cultural Marxism, a.k.a. critical theory. Uh. The thing that a lot of people don't realize in libertarian circles, most of them don't know this, is that libertarianism, as it has been for the last 40 years or so, is um, really intellectually has a lot of, of um, portions of it that are highly influenced by the by this by critical theory and by the Frankfurt School as much as as much as the left. 
to include that experience a lot of even, the all Even in our own ranks. Even in our own mm-hmm. ranks. Yeah, I was about to say that, uh, especially up, um, ta-da, um, Hans Herman Hoppe. Their DNA is, yeah, their DNA is all through libertarianism. All through libertarianism. And and by by proxy, all through the alt-right. Yeah, by proxy, it would be um, through the alt-right. And, sure. Well, okay, so, um, so, so you mentioned Hans, Hans Hermann Hoppe. Performative contradiction is the United States. He was a Frankfurt School. He was a Frankfurt School guy. He was a he was a protege of Jürgen Habermas, who is a the last living guy of the Frankfurt School. He's like ninety one years old or something, or eighty nine or something now. As much as we this. Well, I'm just saying that when he and so when he yeah. left and came to the United States and joined and, and met up with Rothbard, I mean he'd been studying with with Habermas for a long time. Yeah, yeah. As much as much as we, I would like to interview Jürgen Habermas as much as I just like the guy. <laughs> yes, yeah. Talking about would uh, be... the performative contradiction, but even argumentation ethics. You oh, can, yeah, that's the, from Habermas. Er, that's all uh, Habermas' Jürgen, theory. Jür, yeah, Jürgen Habermas um, uh, did work, and it had to do with human relations and how we dealt with each other and talked and so on. And, and so it's not a surprise that the next level taken by Hoppe would be argumentation ethics. I'm not saying that, that that's a Jürgen Habermas thing. I'm saying that's a Hoppe thing, but it's made possible – because he studied under Jürgen Habermas and learned Jürgen Habermas's philosophy, so argumentation ethics is actually a, a form of critical theory. It's an offshoot of yeah. critical theory. A is the deconstruction in its a, method. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it is critical theory. I would say that it comes directly out of critical theory. That it's, it's, that an, it's, it's an obvious. it's an offshoot theory. It's an it's yes. an that's been uh, inverted properly by Hoppe against uh, left-wing collectivism. Because if you try to apply performative contradiction to left-wing ideas, it just it it it, it will cuck itself out. It falls apart. Yeah, it falls yeah. apart. And 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 the, if the you really inverted back to its is, real position. Uh huh. Go ahead. It, uh, to the essential right-wing self-ownership position, then. Then you, uh, uh, then it works. It works. Look at uh, the whole argumentation ethics I subscribe to. It, uh, um, it, it works quite well for uh, against uh, people who want to hold you up at gunpoint to pay for silly things. What I would say is that. Uh, Jürgen Habermas, uh, those guys, the, he mentioned that uh, I saw where they, someone actually asked him about Hoppe, about whether he was, di- you know, it, it, what he thought about it. He said he was somewhat disappointed in in his politics, but he didn't ever, see, he never said he was disappointed in Hoppe's uh, uh, philosophical position. And when I say that, what I think is what he means is that, okay, Habermas is very much an Enlightenment thinker communist or not, uh, because we've already talked about that communism is a end product of the Enlightenment. Um, 
So, so Habermas subscribes to the idea that there is no different races. All men are exactly the same. And Hoppe does not subscribe to that based on the conversation you and I had talking about an interview he did with Michael Malice, that if one holds the position that there are different races, if that, if that makes you a racist, then I'm a racist. So if, if Habermas is disappointed in anything with Hoppe, it's probably the difference in their opinion on that sort of thing, not on, on Hoppe's actual philosophy or, or work. I wonder if they um, um, have talked to each other since. I don't know that they've talked any time recently. From what I, I can't remember where I saw where they were talking about Hoppe. I'm almost positive I saw something where they were talking about about Hoppe, uh, and and he they haven't talked in a long time. Um, you know, but Hoppe's not the only guy. He's not the only guy. Um, Paul Gottfried studied under uh, Herbert Marcuse. Marcuse, yeah. I, I met okay, him. It so was awesome meeting the both. I should have asked him about... Godfrey. I should have asked... Uh, I didn't know at the time that he studied under Marcuse. Um, I did know that Hoppe studied under Jürgen Habermas. I, I should have asked him about it. How was it like? Then I could have given you a real world answer and have it on the show. I'm, I'm kind of ashamed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, well, Godfrey studied under Marcuse, and you can see it, it, the way that he criticizes our society. It's a lot of cultural criticism, uh, in particular of the left, uh, and a lot of criticism. You know, has to do with government and our politics. Which, if you look at what critical theory did, that's what they did. They criticized culture. They criticized, um, in their day, they criticized the right a lot. They criticized the system. They criticized politics in the United States and in the West. And um, it's just so that the difference, I think, if you look at Marcusa and Habermas and Fromm and some of those guys, Back when they were doing their work, the system, the government, it was more conservative-leaning. Um, a lot less of, you know, not liberals were not in the position that they are now in government and in charge of big corporations. And so their criticism, if they were criticizing the system as it was at the time and criticizing um, mass culture, mass media, et cetera, they'd have to be criticizing the right uh, because that's who was holding the reins of power. Now, if you look at guys like Hoppe, you look at Gottfried and some of the other people that we have in the libertarian circles, uh, their criticism of the system has to be of the left. Uh, it's their time. If you're, a, if you're someone who understands and realizes what critical theory is and you apply it and you want to criticize the system, the politics, the culture, well, we have a left-leaning culture now. We have a left-leaning uh, system of government. Our politics have been dominated for quite some time. Our corporations are dominated by the left. Uh, and so their criticism is profound. You know, they're criticizing the same things that Marcuse and, and uh, Habermas and, uh, were criticizing. Uh, the only difference is they're doing it from the right now because the left is ascendant in the institutions of power. So I don't really see that... Um, Gottfried and Hoppe have stopped doing that they aren't doing uh, some form of critical theory. 
Um, I just don't see it being it's not being recognized on the left as critical theory. But um, you're talking about, you know, these aren't just some guy that read that read read a bunch of works in critical theory and started coming up with ideas. These are two guys that studied with masters, with the actual people straight out of the Frankfurt School directly and dealt with them on a regular basis and had their work critiqued, and they were guided by these people. So they were essentially apprenticed to these guys. So my opinion, and if you look, these guys are, by way of the dark enlightenment, are really started the alt-right. Yep. Okay. You know, um, Hoppe really is the beginning of it. If you want to, if you just want to cut it straight down, as far as uh, goes a little further back, because he is the guy whose work was used by uh, Mencius Molbug, aka Curtis Yarvin. Uh, he he was highly uh, influenced by Hoppe, and much of Curtis Yarvin's writings are influenced by Hoppe. He came to a lot of the conclusions he did based off of Hoppe's work. All right, and that that's really where that's what started the Dark Enlightenment. Uh, the Dark Enlightenment is really where most of the, the thoughts, the base red, the idea of the being red pilled, all of that that you see on the alt right now came out of the Dark Enlightenment. The alt right is a direct product of it. Now, Paul Gottfried uh, and Hoppe both were paleo conservatives, paleo libertarians with Rothbard in the Pat Buchanan circle. And uh, they both um, uh, have that paleo, conservative paleo libertarian bent to them. And uh, those guys got attacked for the same reasons that the alt-right got attacked for in the 90s, the paleo, in the early 2000s. The paleo conservatives were treated as though they were white supremacists and racists. Um, and they and hung out with uh, David Duke. Right, and if you look at if you look at Donald J. Trump, a lot of the things that he's doing are the things that the Pat Buchanan group wanted to do, you know. Uh, and so I, I think that you have to look at that. Uh, Hoppe, and then of course Paul Gottfried and Taki Mag wrote his famous alternative right article, which then Richard Spencer co-opted and then sort of ran with it. He set up a alternative right website. Uh, it wasn't working out so hot, so he kind of abandoned it and went to go do something else. And then all of a sudden, the alt-right took off, and Spencer ran back over and said, oh, no, I'm the leader. I'm the leader of the alt-right. He's no such thing. The alt-right was flourishing in spite of him. Really, the alt-right is the creation of, of, of the paleo-conservatives, paleo-libertarians, Pat Buchanan Group and Gottfried and Hoppe. And then you have a lot of stuff that's been interjected since then. But those two, that 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 group is what created the framework for it, and it has its hands heavily in critical theory, which which I find to be ironic, since Patrick Buchanan, who I admire greatly, is always talking about the cultural Marxists. He dislikes them very much, and yet Hoppe and Gottfried, who were both big Pat Buchanan guys, were cult were critical theorists came straight out of that school. So it took us a while. We were around about an hour and 20 minutes, but I think we traced our path pretty good all the way from 
from uh, uh, talking about white privilege ideas and um, uh, race realism. To hop, uh... mm-hmm. Yeah, discussing all of that. And it came all the way to a point where we now understand that the alt-right is essentially a right-wing extension of critical theory uh, complete with all of the fixings that you find in the left but with a right but with a right wing slant it all the way down to its right to position its rep- inverted well inverted to its proper position and, well and you said prior which is correct because the alt right is now in the position that the new left was in in the late 60s well so and- the, the and this, and this too. Fallen into the spot is the counterculture now. Yes, and, and this too. Uh, people on the alt right are probably on the same level as people whose views of the 1950s were. It, it's uh, this whole progressive idea that uh, culture progresses. It's it's very very Hegelian Hegelian. Uh, ideas that well yeah the cultures progress it, it, cultures don't progress they they go through uh, different periods they don't they don't, there's not this uh, thesis and antithesis synthesis going on in cultures that's unfalsifiable right it certainly is unfalsifiable the Hegelian dialectic is is, is a bunch of um, horseshit. Well, just like dualism, it's horseshit. The idea that your mind and your body are separate. Descartes. You are you. Your entire yes, it's horseshit. Your mind and your body are one. Your brain and your entire body are of one thing. Your leg is as your your brain and your le- your leg is as much of you as a whole organism as your brain is. If you take your brain out and stick it in, if you if we were able to do this, let's say science fiction, well, let's say we're able to remove a brain, <clears throat> excuse me, stick it in another body, what would result would be your old brain, but you would have to change. That brain would have to change, and they, that mind would have to mold to the new body, and you'd have a new person. You'd have aspects of the old person there but you'd still be a new person and you'd have aspects of both old persons. The person who used to, that, that body used to be before it lost its part of itself and the inter, interest an integral part of itself and the person that the, that used to be that that brain used to be a part of, but you'd have a new person with aspects that was created from aspects of both people. So the brain, the human, a human being is not a brain. We're a sum of all of our parts together. So dualism is horseshit, just like historicism, Hegelian historicism, Marxist idea of material productive forces is horseshit. And uh, Mises goes into detail, deep, deep detail, onto that idea of the forces of material, uh, material productive forces guiding history, and, and basically explains why it's horseshit in uh, uh, theory and history, uh, which is a book I highly recommend that people read. Um. You know, uh, I, I as I mentioned to you before, I, I'm not sure that the alt right is very healthy right now, um, as a, as a name for any one particular group. Maybe, so, maybe it will evolve into 
something uh, like-minded. Well, I think I, I think, think I think it, I think it'll pick, I think it'll pick up. The, it's still there. Uh, it's yeah, I think it'll pick up the pieces, if uh, not become some something else. Uh, it it will probably uh, take action and won't commit the whole rally thing as much. I hope not. Well, it's but it's still there. The people that were in the so-called alt-right, that were considered alt-right, they're all still there. What's happened is is that after the Unite the Right rally and then the, the, the move to equivocate the entire alt-right with neo-Nazism, uh, which, in my opinion, if you look at the neo-Nazis up until, you know, 10 years ago, uh, they were – it was bad. Okay, they they were it was primarily filled up with white trash. Um, most yes, of and the, the and, but but you know and I and I at the risk of alienating a lot of people, I mean I, honestly, National Socialism is not an intellectual ideology. All right, it's not an it's not if if you're a smart person, you won't stay. If you're a National Socialist and intelligent, you won't be a National Socialist very long. You just can't. It's just not for smart people. Um, it, it's not. They they do not they do not like it, and, and and which is sad because even even communism had an intellectual had, had an intellectual group in it because Marx's scientific communism uh, they had a lot of terminologies and a lot of ideas, so you had to be able to understand a few things in order to get what he was saying. I'm not a Marxist at all, but I do understand that it, there was more into, more room for intellectuals in communism which than there is for than there was for national socialism. And let me tell you, that's not saying much because there wasn't a lot of room in communism for intellectuals. They had a tendency to disappear. So um uh, it, but I, I guess the whole point is I mean that the whole point is is that um now that now that we've went down this road uh we're everybody that was in the alt right is still there and they'll resurface excuse me as something else going forward but this whole thing of of equivocating everybody with neo nazis has kind of um tainted that name and so the brand is, in a way, the brand is still there, and it's easy to talk about it because it's it's what we're used to, but it's not around anymore. I myself, I, I've never really called myself necessarily alt-right. Some other people have called me that, but I've never called myself that. So I, I just kind of like, yeah, I guess I am. People have called me that, but I never, I never, I didn't get up one morning and read about it and say, oh, yeah, that's me. You know, so... I don't. I don't necessarily consider myself to be that. Um, if, if believing in facts, actual arguments, um, sound thinking, logic, rational thinking, which is what I'm all about, if that makes you all right, then yeah, fuck yeah, I guess I'm all right. If if, if just being a rational, logical thinker makes me who who, who uh, believes in a certain level of empiricism evidence to back up your thoughts, statements, and ideas. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm all right. Kind of like Hoppus saying, yeah, he's a racist if, if if believing that other stuff makes him one. 
Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I, yeah. Yeah. So if you believe in logic. I think um what's that? If you believe in logical ideas, you're racist. Well if you if you if you insist on facts and if you follow for instance Occam's razor or Popper Karl Popper's idea of you know, that science is not an not a a pursuit in which you try to find evidence to support your theory. Instead, you should be trying to find evidence to destroy your theory. Um, and you should, if, if, and, and you have to be able to think of ways in which it's falsifiable in order for uh, it to actually be real science. I mean, both of those, if you apply both of those, then there's a lot of things that people believe and say that just aren't real. And in particular, Things about multiculturalism, diversity, and 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 the races. You know, if you if you, you have to apply Occam's razor, you have to have a certain amount of empiricism, and you need to think about Karl uh, uh, Popper's theory of falsifiability. You know, beyond that, anything, and as long as you realize that beyond that, anything that you can't you can't prove. Then they're an, it's an opinion. Yeah. What What would you say to someone like a Mazesian who just believes that well, all all individuals act, so we're all human? Well, okay. Act? Did you say act? Act. Act. Okay. Well, that's not exactly. Uh, a good criteria for us to all be human. Uh, dogs act. They do things that are in their best interest as well. Cats do things that are in their best interest. It doesn't mean they're human. Now, um, I'm not going to go out here and say that uh, people of color aren't human. Black people are human. Um, uh, uh, Chinese people are human. You know, white people are human. American Indians are human. We're all human. And nobody, there's no, there is no single, there is no situation on this earth in which it's okay for one human being to own another human being. Doesn't matter. All right. There's no situation. If you listen to, if you listen to Walter Block, um, people can uh, pay people off by working for them as an indentured service, basically. Well, that's, that's contractual employment, and you've actually pay signed a contract to be employed for so long. You're working for something. You, slavery is an indefinite servitude. You get no, there is no remuneration. You don't get paid for that. You don't get to quit and get a different job. There is no end in sight of it. Slavery, you're owned by somebody. Now, if you sign a contract to pay something off by working for them, you're working for something. You're getting payment. You're getting payment in return. It's just being applied to a debt, and you've agreed to it up front. That's there's a difference. You could say no. I don't want to buy that. 
But I mean, even out out in out in if you're out in the woods and you're a hunter gatherer, if you if you need to work so you can eat, if you got to go out and gather food so you can eat, does that mean you're enslaved by yourself? Yeah. If you if you um, choose to have children and you're required by law to feed your children, does that mean you're enslaved to your children? No, you chose to have them. Knowing full good and well yeah, they were going to be hungry and too little to feed themselves. Well, no, you you created you created that contract yourself. Yeah, you created the responsibility. You're you're if you if you feel enslaved, it's your fault. You enslaved yourself. You're not enslaved to anybody else but you and your own poor decisions. And it's, so, and it's funny when these when these um, people say like like these certain entertainers or these certain people, well, uh, they they killed themselves and abandoned the little kids and families sometimes. Like pe- people committing suicide and abandoning their family. Well, if you're, mm-hmm. you're not for that, then you're for slavery. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that's that's basically it. And those those types of things are a form of inversion. They're they're taking something real and inverting it and making it into something it's not. They're 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 essentially they're just making shit up is what they're doing. It's kind of like the idea of wage slavery. I mean, what the fuck, dude? Wage slavery? Did you know that slaves don't get wages, dumbass? So there's no such thing. If you're a slave, you don't get a wage. So there's no such thing as wage slavery. Now, you might suck because you don't want to live in the woods in a fucking shack and eat grub worms and go fishing for your food every day and be dirty and not have new clothes. But that's a choice that you can make to live in nature that way. Otherwise, you go find an employer who will pay you money and you can go buy goods that other people make from them. But that's not slavery. That's you choosing to make your life better. See, that's the ignorant kind of fucking bullshit that you get out of socialists. And to be quite honest, I can't see a whole lot of difference anymore when I discuss this stuff with national socialists than I can with communists. Uh, I, I mean, some, I, there, and it's kind of like you were talking about falsifiable. You and I were talking, there was a couple instances we were talking, and they people. there's things that people will say to you. For instance, they'll say, well, uh, like for instance, um, I don't like, I, I don't believe in multiculturalism. And they'll say, well, that's bad. So what would be, uh, what would be, should be the next question? Why? Why is it bad? Your favorite well, because question. we're all, yeah, because, because it, it goes back to the three questions of Thomas Sowell, right? Yeah. Where's the evidence? At what cost and compared to what? So I mean, if if you take that, if you think about that, all right. So people people will say the damnedest things. I mean, one of the biggest problems that most people have is begging the question. You know, what that, that logical fallacy where they where they they get to a point where they built this entire structure on top of a premise that has no evidence and that it actually is a real premise. You know, like for instance, um, uh, that, you know, well, I, I believe that we have, 
white privilege. Okay, why do you believe that? If you ask them why enough, and I've done this, you'll get to the point to where they'll say, because it is. That's, uh, isn't it, uh, that's begging the question. It is, but it's, it, it, it's both begging the question and it's unfalsifiable. There's no, there's no way, it's a theory. You, what you've done is you've shown that they have a theory which is unfalsifiable. And you have, then, you, and then you can look at them and say, well, you know what? That's actually an opinion, not a truth. So all of that stuff, see, they want to act as though it's a fundamental truth, white privilege, uh, racism, uh, homophobia, all of that stuff. They want to act as though it's a fundamental truth, when in fact they're just opinions. And if you don't believe it, you're a bad person. Right. And then you ask, well, how come I'm a bad person if I don't believe it? What makes me a bad person for not believing it? Have I hit you? Have I hurt you? Have I stolen from you in any way? Have I done anything to you? Well, you won't let me buy your stuff. Well, yeah, so what? Why is that bad? I mean, it is my stuff. Aren't I allowed to sell it to who I want? Well, yeah. Okay. Go buy it from somebody else. But, see, I admit this is one of the fundamental issues that I have, I think, with a lot of critical theory, is that so much of it is unfalsifiable, like Marxism. Um, now, if you take it for what it is as an analysis, which ultimately a lot of critiques are opinion. Um, then, then you begin to realize that this is your take on it. See, a lot of people get really mad for, at the news at the news uh, media. They say, "Well, CNN, they're liars," and they have a hard time. Well, well CNN is liars, by the way. They do put, print a lot. They put up a lot of falsehoods, and I don't mean things that I don't like to hear are falsehoods. I mean actual things that are factually untrue. They do it regularly. Uh, and then when they have to retract it, they make sure that they, they they retract it in such a way that most people don't know they've retracted it. Uh, but the people who, who they lied about, you know, they can go back and say, oh, yeah, I retracted that. But um, uh, what they, they, they have a hard time. If you see a lot of people on the left, uh, they claim that Breitbart lies all the time nonstop. But actually, uh, anytime anybody does any fact-checking on Breitbart, they find that for the most part, they're usually pretty accurate, almost always right on. It's their headlines and their, and their slant, their, their view of the facts that people take issue with. And because they don't like their view, their opinion, they say they're liars. Whereas CNN, they like their opinion, even though it's based on falsehoods a lot of times or, or a, a significant portion of the time. And so they're not liars. Well, in a lot of cases, I mean, it's about your, your analysis, your take on it. And your analysis is as good as mine. That's the reason, one of the reasons why critical theory can be used from the right. I mean, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So... Um, 
you know, when we talk about this stuff, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the technical aspects of it. And we do a lot of shows where we don't talk very technical, you know, and, and occasionally we do one. And I know that some, there's some listeners who prefer the shows that are less technical and some listeners, a few out there anyway, who like the very technical shows. Um, I don't know. I mean, what is your opinion of our show, David? How do you feel about it as far as how we cover topics and talk about things? We uh, uh, we aim for somewhat um, like a lot of substance, but we also care about presentation and delivering a message that everyone can digest. Sure. So that so it's understandable, simplifying it down for people, I, so that they'll be able to understand. I agree. I mean, I, I think that the, the the big deal here is is that though. I mean, for me, when we started this, I wanted to do a show that talked about. Well, I, I talk about philosophy quite a bit. You and I talk about philosophy quite a bit. I kind of wanted to go into philosophy in a lot of ways. But can't always do that. Sometimes you have to address other topics. Like culture. Um, yeah, culture, um, politics. Sometimes you address music. Music is part of culture. Uh, music, movies, things of that nature, all sorts of different topics. But but I, I, I guess that we... Uh, we have some fairly wide-ranging conversations in general. So, um, but, you know, on the subject of, of critical theory, uh, so, so what do you, what is your overall take of critical theory as a school of philosophy? I mean, do you, do is it, is it somewhere in between it's great or it's bullshit or is it bullshit or is it great? Uh, it's complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> it's bullshit. No, I mean, I mean that's that's pretty honest, and um, I think that uh, uh, for the most part, like I said, I, I think most of it's unfalsifiable. It's 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 opinion. It's 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 your bullshit. It's whatever bullshit you, however you see it. They present you with some tools to go through, and you can see their method, and you can apply their method, continue, you know, to everything consistently. But in the end, it's still opinion, which comes down to your idea that you know your statement that it's bullshit. Because what do they say about opinions? They're like assholes. Everybody's got one. Everybody's of, got one. Yeah, a lot of them stink. So, um, I've. But but I mean honestly and and, and straightforward, uh, the problem is regardless of whether how we see critical theory, you can't deny the fact that it's in everything anymore. As far as culturally, it's it's embedded in our culture, and most people don't even know what the fuck critical theory is. You know, they don't have a clue. So when we start talking about critical theory, they're like, what the hell's critical theory? When was the first time that you ever heard about critical theory? Um, 
first time I heard about critical theory. I think I saw it. Uh, I didn't listen to the episode, but I saw it on the appear on Tom Woods. I was like, "What's critical theory?" Then, yeah, then I saw you talking about it, and I was like, "No, Tom Woods." Like, Seeing you show, describe it on the second episode, yeah, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you weren't in that solid. second episode, which I kind of regret. Yeah. Well, I hadn't read nice Well, that's true, and that's something that um, uh, for me of all the of all the people on critical theory, I think from 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 provides possibly the most useful tools, uh, just simply because he's a psychologist and, and most of his <laughs> analysis is, is psychological. Yes, and I would say yeah that he's he's probably. The best, the best one of the, the strongest. Yeah, I would say that too because honestly, as much as he talked, I mean, because he talked about Marx, and he said that he was a socialist, but he never really, he really was very much a, more of a democratic type socialist than he was a a full on Marxist. You know, uh, more along the lines of a Bernie Sanders kind of guy, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, when they came to America, uh, you know, Horkheimer and Adorno, and I believe they left. They went back to Germany um, or to Frankfurt, and um, which is in Austria, I believe. Um, but but Frome stayed in North America. He went ahead and made his home here. Uh, and he, yeah. you know, he actually set up the mental health system in Mexico. So and and I've seen him in interviews, and he said that he, while he did did not was not really crazy about the U.S. Uh, economic system and political system, he did say that he thought it was the best that existed. It's the best that's ever existed. So, uh, but I don't know if he ever went back to Europe or not. Uh, but he was definitely an anti-Vietnam activist. So, um, well, so we're down to about 12 minutes. <clears throat> Do you have anything else that you'd like to address tonight, David? Um, I think we've covered everything that we were essentially trying to cover. We talked about, we covered a lot of ground tonight in an hour and 30 minutes or so. Um, I think it's been hour, a good almost hour fifty. Yeah, getting close, aren't we? Um, it's been a good discussion. I mean, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about it. Um, I think that for people who listen to the podcast and and want to know more, they they find themselves somewhat, you know, like what what who's that? What am I hearing? What's that term? Uh, re-listen to the, you know, re-listen to it again. Rewind it, you know, if you, especially if you're on Stitcher, or if you're getting it through iTunes or something, you can easily rewind these these podcasts and listen. And uh, go go out and do some research. You know, I'm not a huge fan of Wikipedia, but as a starting spot, it's not bad. Uh, there's a lot of you have to be careful with Wikipedia because it's they're they're crowd edited. Um, but if you look at a lot of the uh, uh, citations 
and sources listed at the bottom of a Wikipedia article. Um, you can find lots of good places to go to read more about critical theory uh, or read more about Paul Gottfried or Hans Hermann Hoppe and uh, Mencius Moldbug, any of those people. Um, those guys are all interesting. They've all written lots of books and lot, written lots of articles. Um, of course, you've mentioned, you've dropped Walter Block two or three times, and Block has actually authored or co-authored over 100 different articles. Um, that does not including his books. Um, <clears throat> so he's pretty prolific. Um, and he's a very interesting libertarian Austrian economist, libertarian thinker. Uh, one of my favorites. Heck. One of my very favorites. Block. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He signed one of. Them. Oh yeah. He he great he graciously signed a Rothbard book for me, and I told him his Rhodes argument and fluency. Very good. Very good argument. Yeah. Yeah. Blocks blocks a, a master a master of of economics and and political thought. I I, I do enjoy him. Um. And I will say, if I'm if I'm anything, I'm definitely uh, when it comes to economics thinking, I'm definitely Austrian. Uh, where I probably slightly different, a little bit of a difference is on the on the area of tariffs. Um, a lot of Austrians think that you should never have any tariffs for any reason at all. Period. And I believe that they're useful as a tool in a situation where uh, other people are tariff, you know, placing tariffs on your goods. And you're trying to get them to drop it, but it's a long-term solution that's horrible. So, um, but anyway, so I guess uh, if you have nothing else to add, David, I guess we can wrap this episode. Oh yeah, yeah for, for all the people into the for anybody people into the Jewish question, um, I was about ten feet from Walter Block. He said that he thinks that 95% of Jews are communist. Bloody communist. <laughs> and he's well, Jewish himself. Again, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, see, that's the thing. is that you just I just can't do the whole Jew thing. I mean, it's not so much that I don't agree with Walter Block, because I do. You and I have had that discussion. But the whole... The place where the Nat Sox go with, with the Jewish, the whole Jewish thing is too far. They're they're into the what we talked about earlier is the unfalsifiable country, you know. Um, I I don't but, like Israel. Uh, well, I, I'm not I, a well, I don't of Israel either. But there, I'm I, but like as I've told you, they're they're preferable to the Islamic countries for the most part. Uh, I don't. I don't necessarily think they're great. I just. I just think that the Islamic countries are worse. That's all. Islam is patriarchy, man. No, it's also it's also basically communism, man. Non-Marxist communism, religious communism. <laughs> it's boomer talk. It is boomer talk. Boomer talk, man. Uh Oh well. Uh, well, uh, so I guess that's it. You about ready to wrap, David? Yeah. All right. Well, 
Uh, it's been a been a great show, and as I've made clear in past episodes, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, MyTune Radio, uh, Podchaser, um, Podbean, and FM Dot Player. And we are also, of course, our main platform, which is um, Blog Talk Radio. We're available on that as well. And uh, I do want to say it it has been a while since our last episode. I do apologize for that. David and I both have a lot going on. Uh, We try to be more regular, put out more episodes over the next few weeks, uh, and try to make sure that uh, we we start getting a steady flow of content streaming out there. But uh, it'll be touch and go over the next over the next few months as we head into the holidays. But we do continue. We do plan to continue to put out more content, right, David? Oh yeah. All right. All right, David. As always, it's been a pleasure, man. Yep. You know, I guess I'll be talking at you. Yep. And good night, everybody. Uh, I think we'll uh, end it right here. Take care. <laughs>